Psalm 23, let's quote what we've learned so far, okay? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of shadow of death, I fear no evil. You are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Now we get to verse 5. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You've anointed my head with oil, and my cup overflows. Now, there is a lot in this next verse. I have been amazed as I've studied how deep it is, and I think we could do three or four studies at the very least just on this one verse. But we'll study it in depth in just a moment. But before we do that, let's quickly summarize what we've learned over the first four weeks. The first week, verse 1, we learned that we're all spiritual sheep and that the Lord is the only true worthy shepherd. Verse 2, we learn that we can trust the Lord even when he uh, inhibits our control, and he will always lead us to a place of greater strength. Verse 3, we learn that because of our sin, we need to have our soul restored and revived, and the Lord does that by putting us back on the paths of righteousness. And then last week, we studied that even when we're in painful situations, that we will choose not to fear. We will choose not to let fear have power over us because we trust that the Lord protects us with his life. Now, we've talked many times about the fact that when we study the Bible, even when it's a passage that we've read many times, even if it's a passage we know and can quote, that there are new insights. How many know that's true? There's always new insight. There's always fresh application that the Spirit of God wants to give us. And in studying Psalm 23 this week, I discovered an important fact that I've never seen before. And that fact is that there is an interesting shift in the relationship that takes place in verse 3. And it's reinforced in verse 5. Now, as I studied and I read a lot this week, some pastors and commentators believe that the literal sheep metaphor that we talked about in verse 1 that, that that carries through the whole psalm, that, that we have to view it all in the, in the context of being sheep. But th that becomes kind of difficult when you get to verse 5. And verse 5 indicates that we, who are both sheep and his people, that, that we're now eating at his table. And that change in emphasis started in verse 3, we remember in verse 3 that that's where our soul is reformed and restored. And once our soul is reformed and restored, it changes the nature of the relationship. And this creates an awesome truth. The awesome truth is now we are not treated as sheep. We are not treated as sheep. Now, last week when we studied verse 4, it kind of seemed like we were still being treated as sheep because the shepherd used his rod and his staff to comfort us as we walked through the valley of shadow of death. But here's the thing. Fearing no evil is not something a sheep can logically do. 
Because not only are they clueless, not only will they wander off and, and fall off a cliff and go through valleys and, and do all sorts of things, but, but sheep can't rationalize. So having our soul restored, verse 3, changes our nature. It changes our thinking. So now we're more aware of spiritual warfare. Now we're more aware of the danger of not walking with the Lord. And then there's another shift in verse 5 that now we know the incredible blessings that he has given us when our souls are restored. Now we're still sheep metaphorically. We don't get out of that. And we still have, I don't know about you, but I still have many of the inclinations of a sheep. But once we trust in him, he transforms our nature. And then we move from being sheep to being called his children and his friends. And once he restores our souls and he changes who we are and he alters the relationship with him, now look at verse 5, we now enjoy being fed at his table and we have our heads anointed with the oil of his blessing and we drink from the abundance of his provision. And as we're going to see when we get back to the last verse in three weeks, he's also so gracious that his goodness and mercy continues to follow us all the days of our lives. Now you may say, well, that's kind of a, it's, it's interesting, but it's kind of a small nuance. Actually, this has tremendous significance. Because it is only because of God's grace, it is only because of the saving work of Jesus Christ, who Hebrews 13 calls the great shepherd of the sheep, it's only because of the Lord that we change from clueless, helpless, spiritual sheep who can't even figure out where to walk or how to find any spiritual nourishment to honored friends who the Lord hosts at his own table. And it even goes beyond that. Verse 5 tells us that he abundantly blesses us. We deserve nothing. And he blesses us to the point, and this is what I love about this text. He blesses us to the point where there is overflow. Now I pray, my prayer this morning for myself and for you is that we will be in awe of the Lord that we will be overwhelmed by what the Lord has done. Because when we talk about living in God's strength, we have to come back to verses 5 and 6 of Psalm 23 because they give us complete confidence and complete joy. So let's look back at the verse. It's on the screen. And let's read it out loud together with great confidence. Ready? You prepare a table for me. In the presence of my enemies, you have anointed my head with oil, my cup overflows. Now, I'm going to ask them to leave that up there because we're going to come up, we're going to see three truths, three main truths from this text this morning. And these are very basic. They're right out of the text. But I believe these are powerful, powerful truths that will change the way we think. They will fill us with confidence and strength and power and, and, and a sense of contentment maybe that we didn't walk in with this morning. So let's deal with three truths. Truth number one, the fact that the Lord hosts us at his table, the fact that the Lord hosts us at his table proves his victory over our enemy. 
The fact that the Lord hosts us at his table proves his victory over our enemy. Now, we know the Lord is holy, right? Isaiah 6 says, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. There are, there are angels surrounding the throne of God right now as we sit here in Racine, Wisconsin, July 2018, in heaven right now, for all eternity backwards, for all eternity forwards, there are angels around the throne of God saying, God is holy, God is holy, God is holy. And because God is holy, he cannot allow what's unholy into his presence. And he certainly will not allow someone who is unholy to eat at his table. You ever had a child that comes to the table and they've been out in the rain and the mud and they come to the table and they sit down and you look at them and go, I don't think so. Go wash your hands, go wash your face, go prepare yourself because we've made a nice meal and you're not going to sit here all grubby and gross and eat at our table. In other words, you're physically unholy. You're physically unready. Well, God says, when you come to my table, you're not going to be spiritually unholy. See, eating together is one of the primary sources of fellowship that we have. And that was even more true in the Middle East in biblical times. It's even true today. There is a, there is a relational intimacy. There is a communication of friendship and agreement and, and, and unity that comes from being at the table together. So the fact that the Lord prepares, look at the word, prepares his table for us and feeds us indicates that there is a restored, purified, unified relationship. Now notice two powerful implications of this. One is that verse 4 is finished. Verse 4 is finished. The attack and danger of death is gone. So the spiritual implication of, I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Don't, don't just think about that as trials. Think about that from a spiritual context now. That the valley, the threat of death, the threat of spiritual separation from God, the threat of torment because we have rejected the grace of God. For a believer, that is long gone. It's no longer there. We don't have to fear evil. Why? Because he's redeemed us and he's with us. So now we can peacefully come to the table of God and enjoy the fruits of his grace. So that's the first implication. That being at the table means that, that verse 4 is done. The other implication is that even though our enemies are present, we'll talk about that in a minute, they're powerless to do anything against him or us. So we're sitting at the table of God, enjoying the grace of God, enjoying the feast of the fruit of his grace, and now our enemies are there, but we don't have to fear it. They can threaten us, they can try to discourage us, but there is an irrefutable fact. We are sitting at God's table because he has secured our salvation and our victory. Somebody say amen to that. So even in the presence of our enemy, even in the presence of our enemies, we're sitting in the Lord's presence. And the Lord's presence is more powerful, and that fills us with peace and confidence and strength. But I want you to notice, go back at the verse, there's something that's even more prominent than that. 
The word presence here, you see it in verse 5, the word presence is the Hebrew word neged. Now, it's a fascinating word because it means conspicuous. It means on display. What does that mean? It means that the table of God's grace and our presence at it is seen by everybody. So we enjoy the feast of his provision, even as our enemy. And I got the picture this week of, of sitting in a nice restaurant at a picture window, and you have fine dining and silver chalices, and the waiters are coming and all lifting it to see. You ever been to one of those restaurants? I have like once, like once or twice, and you come, and the waiters come, and all at the same time, they lift the, the cloche, and there's your beautiful, you know, $95 meal. And no, I'm just kidding. You know, 30, $39 filet that's, you know, four ounces, and you pay $6 extra for the potatoes. You ever been in one of those restaurants? You're like, I love potatoes, but $6, you gave me like three little medallions of, of a baked potato that cost 49 cents a pick and save. Like, what's going on? But it's okay. It's a nice restaurant. God doesn't give us fast food. We are at a, a beautiful, luxurious table of his grace. And as we sit there, there's a picture window, and the enemy is roaming around, irritated. But he can't get inside and he can't stop it because God has poured out his grace and prepared a table for us. And you may say, well, that seems a little, a little in your face, Paul, and, and a little overconfident. And, and listen, we've all experienced the devil's opposition. We've all experienced his attack. We know what it's like. We know what it is to be in the middle of it. We know that it's frightening and it's intimidating, but there is one fact that the devil can't change and that that is that Jesus Christ has defeated him forever. And God has extended his grace to every single person. See, in Matthew 11, Jesus was eating with the people that they called the sinners. The prostitutes, the, the tax collectors, the people who were unclean. And the Pharisees came along and they they strongly criticized Jesus. What are you doing eating with sinners? What are you doing eating with those who, who, who hate God? Why would you do that? And it illustrated a spiritual point that Jesus is willing to love every person. He is willing to save every person out of the devil's control. And he is willing to purify every person and bring them to his table. When we're saved by Christ and we experience his eternal, eternal redemption, he says, now come to my table. Now experience the fruit of my grace. So even when we're on the front line of spiritual warfare, we can quote 1 Corinthians 15. It says, God has given us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now be steadfast and immovable in him. So he's already defeated our big enemy. But there are also going to be other people who act as enemies toward us. People who harass us for our faith. People who simply just don't like us. They've hurt us deeply. They have purposely offended us. They've stabbed us in the back. They've ruined relationships. And if we're honest, we'd no sooner want to eat with them or be near them when we're eating than we would get a root canal. 
And you know what? The devil knows that. He knows that and he leverages that. And since his objective is to discourage us and drive us backward, because he knows he can't defeat us, he knows he can't take us out of the Lord's hands. So he just wants to keep damaging us and discouraging us and driving us backward. So what does he do? He brings those people back around. You can feel their presence, right? You can just, you can just, you, you know they're not near, but you just get irritated by it. Often this happens through social media. We see a post, right? Something somebody posts, and they're out having a great time, and they're with people that have hurt, and, and whatever. You guys know what I'm talking about. And, and you know what? When you see something like that, it just puts you in a lousy mood for the rest of the day. Churches experience this. Pastors experience this. We've experienced this in multiple churches. Every pastor has. The devil hates the church. He hates anything that's going on in the church that's honoring to the Lord. So what is his goal? His goal is to divide. His goal is to turn believers against each other. His goal is to split churches. His goal is to make pastors quit the ministry. 1,800 a month quit the ministry because of this kind of issue. But look at how the Lord deals with it. Let's not give the devil any credit this morning. Look at what the Lord does. He says, come to my table. Come to my table. You'll be refreshed there. You'll be encouraged there. You'll be fed there. This is why being in church is so important. This is one of the tables that you feed at every week. Don't, don't neglect it. Listen, I, I wouldn't miss three meals in a row for anything, right? I'm hungry. I need some food right now. Wish somebody bring me a piece of pizza or something. I, I'm hungry this morning. So, so I'm I'm looking at lunch, going, what are we gonna eat for lunch? And if I didn't eat lunch by dinner, I'm ready, right? But 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 we don't think anything. Oh, I'll just miss church. I'll miss Bible study. I'll miss fellowship. I don't need that. I, I got other things to do. I got hobbies. I got sports. I got listen. We, you and I, and you guys are faithful. I'm not. I'm not picking on you this morning. But, but we've got to be faithful to the church. This is one of the tables. We've got to be faithful to studying the Word of God every day because that's a table we sit at. The table's important. And his table is a place of refreshing. It's a place where we receive strength and we realize that all people, ourselves included, listen now, all of us are sinners who have hurt others. But we're not going to let that steal our joy when somebody's hurt us because his table is a place of fellowship and we're nourished physically and spiritually. You know, there have been multiple sociological studies. Well, let me, let me start with this. There have been multiple church studies that have detailed the decline in church attendance over the last 25 years. Is it any wonder that divorce is on the rise among Christians, that depression's on the rise among Christians, that churches are not doing well, that the church has a reduced influence, that evangelism's not taking place, that prayer meetings aren't taking place, that, 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 that the world is getting far worse, not far better. The church's influence for all the bells and whistles is not stronger. Why is that? Because church has become optional. And then there are multiple sociological studies that detail the loss of the family meal and the family table and how that has had a devastating impact, especially on children. Add to that that even when there's a family meal, what happens? Right? 
electronics. Now, I use a cell phone just like anybody else. I like going on the Internet and doing apps and all that just like anybody else. But, but here's the thing. I watch this in restaurants all the time. I was a sociology major in college, so I like sociology. I like how people work, how groups work. So, so when I watch this in restaurants, I'll see people sitting at a table. I'll see a family sitting at a table. Everybody's on their phone. I'll see a couple on a date, and I'm like, wow, that's so nice. I go on like two dates a year with Julie, so, so this is great. This couple's made time. They dressed up. They're on a date, and they're sitting at Chili's, and they're sharing chips, and, and, and what are they doing? They're having a deep, great conversation, looking in each other's eyes. Nope. Scrolling, texting, talking with friends, catching up with friends that aren't right in front of them. You and I have done this, right? Come on, everybody raise your hand if you've done that before. Oh, that was pathetic. Everybody be to be raising their hands right now. We've done it. How many know that we need to radically intentionalize the family table? And I want to tell you right now, we need to institute a cell phone ban at the family table. Put them away. No text, no social media. No, well, I just got to check. Somebody check. Nope, put it away. Have each family member take turns saying the prayer before the meal. Then ask questions and talk about the day and encourage each other. Talk about what the Lord's doing. They say, well, Paul, come on. I'm so tired. I'm so stressed from all the responsibilities. And the kids have had a rough day. And they got bullied at school. And they're worn out. And why can't we just you know, kind of take a breath and, and, and have some connection with, with the world and see what's going on. How about we talk to each other? How about we take time to laugh and encourage and strengthen each other? How about we take time to remember that the Lord is sufficient and that that table represents Psalm 23, 5. You prepare a table for me. The presence of my enemies that gives us perspective and it gives us renewed energy for what we need to face. And we're going to be even more empowered when we get to the second truth. Because it says, you have anointed my head with oil. Here's the second truth. By anointing us with his oil, the Lord reminds us that we're set apart and blessed. By anointing us with his oil, the Lord reminds us that we're set apart and blessed. Now, oil has a number of significant uses in the Bible, and I'm going to give you some, some texts, and I want you to just write them down. You can look at them later. But, but oil is significant in the Bible. It starts in Exodus 25, where oil was poured on the head of the high priest, and oil was sprinkled on the tabernacle to mark both as holy and set apart to the Lord. In 1 Samuel, we see Samuel using oil to anoint David as king. That was a life-changing experience that absolutely had a, a, a memory. When David wrote Psalm 23, 5, you've anointed my head with oil. He remembered the day that Samuel came and found him and poured oil over his head and said, you're the king of Israel. So, so David knew that. And that was to signify that someone was set apart and approved to the Lord as the leader of people. Now, the recipe for that anointing oil 
was very specific. It included myrrh and cinnamon and other ingredients. And that wasn't because myrrh and cinnamon have supernatural power. It was because the Lord wanted to test the obedience of the people to see, will you precisely obey my word? Because many times the people didn't. So he said there's a specific mix for the anointing oil. And when you anoint somebody, when you anoint the tabernacle, you know that that is set apart for me. That's holy to me. Then there are other instances of oil being used in the Bible. And they indicated gladness at being set apart. Gladness at being able to receive his help. Here are the texts. Genesis 28. Jacob has a dream of a ladder going to heaven when he's at Bethel. Bethel was a holy place. And when he got up from the dream, the stone that he was laying on that he had used as a pillow, he took oil and poured it out and then propped it up as a pillar to the Lord. This is a holy place, Bethel. In Mark chapter 6, the disciples anointed the sick with oil and healed them. In James chapter 5, the sick are called to come to the church leaders to be anointed with oil for prayer, believing that God will heal them. In Mark chapter 14, we see Mary anoint Jesus' feet as an act of worship. And then in 1 John 2.20, Jesus' disciples are told that we have anointing from the Holy Spirit who leads us into all truth and fills us with his grace and comfort. So let's summarize it. There are a couple concepts that we need to get out of this. One is that oil is an indication of being set apart by the Lord. Someone who is now made holy, someone who is now called to serve him. So the oil means set apart. The oil is also a symbol of God's power. That God's power is poured out on our lives. You'll receive power after the Holy Spirit comes upon you. So if oil is a symbol of the Holy Spirit, then it's also a symbol of God's power being poured out on our lives. And we respond like Mary did with, with faith and obedience and worship. And then it's a seal that the Spirit is on us. And you and I as believers, you and I as disciples, every one of us is anointed to live for him. Now look back at the verse. You've anointed my head with oil. That's not debatable. The, the verse, the, the verb have has no equivocation. There's no doubt. It's not like, well, you may anoint my head with oil on Monday, but you probably don't anoint my head with oil on Wednesday. No, you have anointed my head with oil. This is not debatable. He does this to all who trust him and yield to him as shepherd. And the Spirit seals that. His anointing on our lives means that we are his. It's not, well, I received Christ, I prayed a prayer, I trusted him, now I'm going to heaven, now I do what I want. No, that's not how it works. You are bought with a price, the price of Christ's own blood. And the Spirit now is the source of security and strength. So, Adam referred to it earlier, you're not feeling strong today. The enemy's filled you with fear and insecurity and doubt and you feel worthless and inadequate and, and, and you can't see what's going to happen next and, and, and you're kind of, uh, I, just, I just don't have it this morning, Paul. Well, I want you to read Psalm 23, 5 because it says you are set apart and you're blessed and God has given you hope 
and he's given you confidence and strength and his anointing will fill you with joy. So why would you believe the enemy's lies? Because all he wants to do is strip you of power and joy and destroy you. And listen, if that's where you're living this morning, I want to challenge you and I want to encourage you. Stop living in that destructive, hopeless place. Because the Lord wants to anoint your head with oil. But you have to stop resisting him. I promise you, I promise you, you will never experience true joy. You will never experience any degree of peace or confidence about your eternal future until you surrender to him. But when you do, oh, oh, he doesn't treat you like a sheep anymore. He says, come to my table. And I'm going to pour out the oil of my blessing over you. And that leads us to the last awesome truth in verse 5. It's just three words. My cup overflows. See, here's the third truth. The Lord's sufficiency and blessing is so great that there's an overflow. The Lord's sufficiency and blessing is so great that there is an overflow. David says, my cup overflows. What an amazing statement in light of what's already happened at the table. The Lord prepared a feast. He invites us to the feast. We eat in the presence of our enemies who are powerless to stop it. And the Lord anoints us with oil to show just how blessed we are. But it doesn't stop there. He says, you take my cup and you fill it. And not just part way, you fill it till it overflows. You see, throughout the Bible and in the culture of the Middle East at that time, the cup was a metaphor for a person's fate. The cup was our fate, so that was either negative or positive. The negative, always in Scripture, has to do with defying and disobeying the Lord. So, the Lord tells Israel in Ezekiel, you're going to drink from the cup of ruin because of your rebellion, and your, your kingdom is going to be divided. You're going to be destroyed because you keep drinking from the cup of ruin. In Jeremiah 25, the Lord says, all nations will drink from the cup, from my cup, and humanity will be judged, and the wicked will be condemned. We don't hear this very much in our PC Christian culture, do we? The, the world will be condemned. Anybody who rejects me, they're going to be condemned because they're living in wickedness, and I can't abide that. And then the Lord says in Revelation 14, anybody who worships Antichrist, anybody who takes his mark, is going to drink of my wrath mixed in the cup of my anger. That's the negative. But then there's positive. There always is with the Lord, right? And where the negative focuses on defying God, the positive focuses on receiving his grace. In Psalm 16, David says, The Lord is my portion and my cup. So I set the Lord always before me in trust and obedience. And when he's at my right hand, I won't be moved. 
in Psalm 115, 116, the songwriter lifts the cup of salvation. He praises the Lord for his benefits, and he calls on his name for help. In the Gospels, we have a picture of Jesus. We celebrated it last week. We have a picture of Jesus offering the cup. This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. I'm going to go to the cross. My people are going to nail me to it, and I'm going to take your sins on me, and I'm going to die for them, and then the third day I'm going to defeat them. And Jesus leaves the Last Supper and he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane and he cries and he sweats blood and he cries out to the Father about the cup that is the agony that's been placed on him as the trillions and trillions and trillions and trillions and trillions of sins that humanity has committed are all put on him. And he feels the weight of that and he says, this cup is heavy. And yet, he bore that cup and he poured himself out as a drink offering and he defeated sin and death forever. See, the cup is our fate. So come back to verse 5 one more time and we'll pray. Look at this metaphor. We can drink from the cup of ruin or we can drink from the cup of God's mercy. This do in remembrance of me. As often as you eat or drink, remember me. And remember that because the cup is the new covenant in my blood, and it represents the blood that was the payment and redemption for your sin, remember that I have given you life, and I have given you life that is abundant. So when we read Psalm 23, 5, it all makes sense. Because the cup already represents abundance. But now the Lord goes above and beyond. More than we can imagine. And he says, I have filled it so full that it will overflow. The Lord's blessing is so rich. The Lord's sufficiency is so rich that we have above all that we ask or think. And it keeps flowing. It keeps pouring out. It keeps running over. Now, be very careful. This is not talking about material blessing. Because that's a self-centered way of thinking. Well, God says, my cup will overflow, so I'm just going to trust him, and he'll give me whatever I want. Heaven forbid that ever happened. This is about spiritual filling. This is about the Lord's grace. This is about being filled with his Holy Spirit daily. This is about being filled with joy and contentment because the Lord is with us and the Lord helps us and the Lord provides for us. And like we read in verse 1, there is no want. Now we're going to hear a bunch of lies to the contrary. And the enemy will point to our feelings. Well, it doesn't feel like the Lord's helping you right now, does it? Look at your circumstances now. Come on. Don't listen to that. God's not helping you. You are living in fear, and it's justifiable. Let me tell you something. The Lord never fails us or forsakes us. He never fails us or forsakes us. And he doesn't just help us scrape by. We don't just sit at the side of the table like my dog who loves to beg. He has certain places in the kitchen where he positions himself with that face like, going to drop some cheese down to me, pal? Little cracker, come on. 
The Lord's not giving us scraps. He doesn't just fill the cup half full. Listen, a lot of people, a lot of Christians live in that half full mentality. That, that kind of spiritual pessimism damages your faith. You'll never experience any kind of joy or contentment. You're like, well, my cup's only half full. Well, whose fault is that? Because the Lord promises right here, your cup's going to overflow. So when you and I fully trust him, he will abundantly help us. He'll strengthen us so much. Listen now, this is truth. He'll strengthen us and bless us so much that we won't even know what to do with the excess. And we won't be discontented because he provides everything we need over and above. We won't fear because he's with us. He promised that, right? And perfect love does what? It casts out all fear. And we won't be clueless and worried and wandering around because he'll lead us and he'll put us on paths of righteousness and in his will. And we won't need to wander away and find some alternative and, and, and get all stressed out because we're not getting answers. Because there's nothing better than his presence. Because in his presence is what? Tell me. Fullness of joy. Oh, we don't believe that. Well, I, I don't know. I can neglect the word and neglect prayer and, and God will help me. Nope, 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 nope. In his presence is fullness of joy. Everything is found in him. There's nothing lacking. It's the place of his overflow. Now, here's the bottom line. Is that where you live? Are you living every day? In his abundance and blessing, or is there a lack? You're like, well, Paul, I'm kind of lacking. I crave it. I crave it. But listen, you're not living for it. But I want it. Well, then you're going to have to change. But why won't the Lord just give it to me? Because you're wandering. You could be eating in his table, but like the prodigal, you're sitting in the pit with the pigs eating the scraps. And God says, I have so much more for you. Well, I, uh, uh, no, no, there's no alternative. At his table or not at his table. His table is ready. It's prepared. It's abundant. He's standing there with the oil of his blessing, ready to pour it out on your head. It's up to you whether you're going to eat there.